good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Adam Kaza, and uh, with Gunter Gasner and another colleague, Catherine Robinson, from the Cities Program, who is uh, just on her way in, potentially right now, coming down the steps. Um, uh, we wanted to welcome you to this year's Writing Cities public lecture. Um, before I introduce the chair for the night, Justin McGurk, and we get on with the evening, we wanted to tell you just a short few words about this project, um, which started four years ago. So welcome. Catherine, sorry. <laughs> the silence was getting to us. Um, Writing City started about four years ago as a collaboration between the institutions you see on the screen, Harvard Law School, the Harvard Graduate School of Design, uh, MIT School of Architecture and Urban Planning, and uh, the uh, Cities Program here at LSE, uh, which has now kind of expanded and included uh, geography, social policy through our network here called Urban at LSE. The impetus for this was to bring together an annual group of graduate students working on the diverse areas uh, about cities, and rather than just speaking about their content, to deal and grapple with the methodology of writing, uh, ergo the title, Writing Cities. So uh, thinking about how we produce texts about cities, uh, how those texts get translated into built form or vice versa, um, and from all these different disciplines, trying to think critically about our relationships, not only to the built environment, but to the institutions that we're part of, that form uh, the core. Um, out of this, uh, we've produced so far one volume of, of working papers, um, which actually are available outside afterwards, if you'd like to take something away. Uh, a nice compendium and collection of our thinking. Um, just a few, there's a few. First come, first serve. Um, but this year's... Um, this year's conference tackles with the issue of distance and cities. Ergo, why we have this wonderful um, uh, group of people here tonight, who Justin will introduce in a minute, uh, to, to introduce the theme and really launch and kick off the conference for the next two days. Um, so I'll introduce the chair for the night, Justin McGurk. Uh, he's going to then introduce how the evening will work. It's a little different format, uh, and we'll get going. So Justin McGurk is uh, the, a design critic at The Guardian uh, and also a um, director, uh, publishing director of the Strelka Institute for Media, Architecture and Design in Moscow. He was the former editor-in-chief at Icon magazine um, and commentates and publishes uh, in the media about general issues about architecture, urbanism and design. So we're very pleased to have him to guide us through the night uh, among this distinguished panel. Uh, and so please welcome, uh, join me in welcoming Justin McGurk this evening. Thank you very much, Adam. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, especially with this distinguished panel. Uh, the topic tonight, as Adam points out, is distance. Now, uh, it's, it's become a kind of cliche to point out that 50% of the world's population lives in cities, um, and in, indeed to even engage in, in studying the city in the early 21st century is to leave a trail of staggering statistics. But there must be other ways, in fact there are many, many other ways of understanding the city. Uh, tonight it's distance, and um, in the paper this morning I was reading an interview with the New York Times columnist David Brooks, who had his own staggering statistic which was that uh, someone studied how many times people in different cities touch each other over a cup of coffee uh, during an hour. And they found that in Rio it was 180 times, in Paris 120 times, and in London zero. <laughs> now that suggests that distance, at least interpreted as personal space, is hardwired into the psyche of the Londoner. 
But that's just one interpretation of distance, and we're going to hear at least five or six tonight um, from this panel. Um, the question we'd like to get to, they're all going to make their own kind of polemical or provocative statement, and then we can kind of discuss whether distance is a good thing or a bad thing. Is it something we want to telescope or uh, diminish? And um, we're going to start, I'll go through our panel and introduce them. We have uh, Richard Sennett, the eminent sociologist, who is um, no stranger to you, I'm sure, and very associated with the Cities program here. Uh, Gerald Frug, who lectured here on Tuesday night, the Lois D. Brandeis Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Uh, to my left, Fran Tonkis, reader in sociology and director of the Cities program. Asher Gertner, an urban geographer who teaches at the uh, LSE as well. Lawrence Vale, to my right, Ford Professor of Urban Design and Planning and uh, formerly head of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. And um, finally, Patrick Schumacher uh, of Zaha Hadid Architects, <coughs> and uh, well known to you as well as both a theorist and architect. So uh, we have an order for this evening's uh, event. The, the panel are all going to uh, make and then explain their statements. They have three minutes each, as I understand it. And we're going to try and be fairly expeditious about this so that we have time to um, discuss their provocative statements. Um, let's start with. Uh, Gerald Frug, who is the first on the list. So you want me to go here? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not leaning forward. It seems to work. All right. So um, when one goes to urban conferences, there's a kind of a general idea that everybody talks to each other about, which I'm going to summarize and caricature. We believe in mass transit and against the car-centered culture. We believe in affordable housing and dense housing. We believe in public space and equity and uh, having people gather together. Uh, we, we believe in an environment and we believe in green buildings and biking and all this other stuff. So there's this kind of general culture of an idea of the city that pe people talk about and it's often put together in uh, a single sentence like uh, the car-centered disparate single-family housing spreading uh, urban structure is no longer sustainable. That kind of thing. Said all the time. The thing about this kind of sentence is it has the wonderful ambiguity best perfected by Marx. Uh, when you say it's no longer sustainable, it sounds like it's impossible to continue. It just can't happen anymore. It's over. Forget about it. But then it, it also means urbanists of the world unite. Uh, we need to bring this new city about. Uh, if we don't create this urban mass transit dense city, it'll be the end of the world. The kind of the, the Marxian puzzle is why we have to work so hard to bring up about the inevitable. Uh, but that's basically the feeling. Now, that's at urban planning conferences. Now, here's, I don't want to uh, uh, dispute any of this. I actually believe all of it. Uh, my problem is no one's listening that if you actually follow what the politicians are doing, they're basically doing the opposite. They're basically supporting an enormous car-centered culture. They're building far and far out, this is around the world, the importance of the car industry in China and in India and in Japan and Korea and the United States, which we just tried to save. Uh, the uh, segregation of housing by income so the world is moving in one direction, and, and the urban discourse 
is in a totally different place. So, I mean, what I'm interested in is why are they not listening? Why are they not listening? That's the question uh, that I want to say. Now, for me, the important thing is who are they who are making the decisions that are creating the world uh, they're talking about? And what would it mean for them to listen? So, again, here there's kind of two ideas of who they is. There's the idea that what you just described is capitalism. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just the unfolding of capitalism. Politics is just superstructure. Forget about it. And then there's the people that say, oh, no, it's all politics. The people united can never be defeated. Uh, and all we have to do is get together and we can defeat these people. I'm not in either camp, actually. I think that there is a they. Very complicated who is making the decisions, city by city, we actually have to dissect it. And then there is a politics. There is a politics, city by city, that we have to figure out. But I, I'm neither in the belief that there is no such thing as politics or that it's, going, it's automatic. So it's the distance between the policy people and the urban people. That's what I'm interested in. Perfect. Diamond. Um, Franz, okay, why, don't, why don't you read your statement first and then... Well, I'm, I'm going to um, speak from over here okay, by using sure. up my first 15 seconds. <laughs> to read my statement first. So the closer things get, the further apart we stand. Uh, keeping your distance is a very key urban art. And thinking about writing cities, historically through classical social theory as well as through our efforts at this workshop, uh, and this ongoing conversation between these institutions over the years. Uh, we know that the tension between physical proximity and social distance has been very central to classical accounts of the modern city. Georg Simmel, of course, wrote very powerfully about the need to, to mark out and protect uh, what he called one's psychological private property in the metropolitan crowd producing a characteristic urban attitude, characteristic at least of, of Berlin in the early 20th century, and as we know from the David Brooks article, London in the early 21st century, an attitude that allows people to maintain their effective distance, even at very close physical range. Social distance in this sense has long been seen as a necessary defense for the pressures of urban life. But more positively, uh, we can think about other ways of writing distance in the city and social distance in the city in particular uh, in terms of the capacity of everyday urban spaces if not exactly to mediate social differences uh, and social distance but at least to hold them together in the same place in ways that are non-conflictual um, and even at times uh, convivial. The other side, the, the darker side of social distance, though, uh, bears on the burden of my claim. And that is the very simple observation, the, that as physical distances are compressed in various ways in the city, as uh, space is annihilated by electronic time through transport and communication technologies, and as urban differences at the city level are collapsed through an increasingly prevalent logic of development, Conversely, forms of social distance, I would put it to you, are compounded, deepened, and entrenched. So let me take two instances of this tendency as I see it. The first of which concerns urban economies, 
and the kinds of urban forms associated with them, and the second from the realm of policy, which links uh, somewhat, I think, with Jerry's comment. One feature of the dominant logics of urban economic development to which I referred is a general, if not exactly universal, trend of widening income inequality in cities. And we see this uh, in a range of cities uh, worldwide, from the relatively more egalitarian Chinese cities, which, which see their um, income disparities deepening, to the very stark inequalities evident in numerous cities in sub-Saharan Africa. And inside that range, growing inequality in many cities in Western Europe and certainly in North America. This deepening of economic inequality and the social and economic distances associated with it is evident not simply in the cold logic, however, of Gini coefficients, but is also visible in the kinds of functional interdependence uh, that we find, functional economic interdependence between low-grade and high-grade service workers in globalizing parts of an economy such as London, workforces that share the same workplace, that live their economic lives in the same space, uh, but are separated by extreme forms of social distance and economic different, uh, differentiation. It's also evidence in the cheek by jowl proximity of affluence and relative degrees of deprivation in the city, uh, the model of, of the gated community with the attendant services lying beyond its perimeter um, and entering into it daily, but also in the, the presence of homelessness on the streets of some of the wealthiest cities in the world. And I'm reminded always in that moment of uh, the famous, infamous comment of a minister under the last Conservative government um, that homeless people were the ones that you stepped over on your way out from the opera. The other uh, and closing point I wanted to make refers to the issue of policy, and in particular the turn to the local, which Gerald Frug was uh, addressing for us in his public lecture on Tuesday evening. And the turn to the local, not only as a disavowal of the state and a retrenchment of local government, but in some sense the disavowal of the city as a place of difference. Such an ideal of the local favors proximity and disregard, that is physical proximity, and disregards moments of identity or empathy across distance and over time. It is I would put it to you anti-urban in the respect that cities condense differences up close and spread commonalities across space. So the force of the argument works in two ways here. Firstly, a politics of the local uh, is an, uh, has an antipathy towards difference up close, but also discounts the scope for identity and common cause across space with those you may not know, with those whom you may never meet. In this sense, it misses both the proximity of differences in the city, uh, overstates the uh, capacity of um, local adjacency to overcome social distances, but also limits the imaginative and the spatial range of identity in the city. Thank you, Frank. Uh, now we're going to hear from Larry. <coughs> No, I just think uh, we, we shouldn't keep distancing ourselves from the previous speakers. Uh, uh, it, uh, um, I, I had, in my, my 30 words, I'll, I'll just read it. We often navigate a semi-permeable city, 
uh, think about what that means, where a design is saying yes, but the politics uh, that, that, in, that surround that are saying no. Uh, and sometimes it goes the other way. So I, I advocate a term design politics, uh, not design and politics, but a hyphenated single term that helps talk about the ways that we have to live with a kind of cognitive dissonance uh, between those, um, uh, those worlds that really happens at the, uh, the same kind of time. Um, so I, I had been involved in, in thinking about this for uh, a long time and have taught a class called Urban Design Politics. And people always say, oh, you mean urban design and politics? And I say, no, no, it's urban design politics. I want to know about the politics of design and the design of politics. Um, and uh, uh, it started uh, when, when I was working on a book about parliamentary districts around the world uh, called Architecture, Power, and National Identity and was confronted with the paradox, and I think it has, has distance all over it, uh, that these symbols of, of openness and democratic access and, and societal openness uh, were surrounded by armed guards. And, uh, and often almost completely impermeable or even unapproachable. Um, and so uh, there was a sense of, of distance that was both literal and, and figurative. Um, and, and so if I had to figure out what the distance for writing and comprehending cities would be, it's really getting you to a point where you're, you're just about uh, far enough from your subject to safely comprehend the, the details of the built environment um, but, but also able to comprehend the ways that the layers of politics have um, enshrouded that place. Um, and let me give you an, a, a, a quick example. Um, one of the places that I looked at um, now 20 years ago uh, was the National Assembly Building for Kuwait, uh, which was built uh, in the 80s, uh, designed by Jorn Utsan in one of these let me make concrete look like cloth exercises. Uh, with this grand portico facing the Arabian Gulf uh, and all sorts of uh, uh, large gestures in a very prominent site in Kuwait City. Um, when I went to, uh, to go see it the first time, however, uh, I found out that it was forbidden to photograph uh, or to approach uh, the building. Um, and, and I found that very, very strange. So the first thought was, let me get a hotel room that overlooks it, and I did that. Uh, and took some pictures. And then I wanted to figure out where, where do I really stand? Where do I begin to do it? And so I, I got closer to the building and developed what became known to me, at least, as the palm trunk principle, uh, which means that you find the armed guard in his little booth and you figure out uh, how can I get close enough and put the trunk of a palm tree between his machine gun and my camera just long enough so that I can lift up my camera, click, and continue unnoticed. Um, and, uh, and that was the moment where I felt design politics together because I, I was close to the building, um, but, but, but I was also uh, trying to understand why it was that the building didn't want me to be getting any closer to it and what it was about that place. And it turns out that the grand portico, which had been designed to shelter a mosque uh, in the first set of designs, was considered to be completely uh, inappropriate because people kindly reminded the gentle Dane uh, that if you, uh, if you put a mosque in front, that means you have to have people able to attend it and approach it. And the last thing that anybody wanted was to have people there. So it ended up being the world's largest carport 
um, at the entrance to the Parliament building. Um, otherwise, uh, and, and the mosque was inside for those who were uh, vetted properly to attend. Um, so that's the um, that's the question um, uh, for me: is is what happens uh, when when there is a world where people like to think that they're being open and creating openness. Uh, and yet the circumstances that, that enshroud the commission and the whole idea of, of a public place uh, are working against it. And, and there are places like that all over the world. Uh, it's not uh, just explicitly political spaces. Um, it's everywhere where security issues uh, have intruded upon uh, all concepts of public space. And so the, the question for me when writing about those places is how do you find the vantage point where you can see uh, both the space that was intended and the political reality that enshrouds it? Thank you, Larry. Thanks. Asher, are you going to uh, pound the pulpit or just give us a fireside chat? Maybe I'll do the fireside chat. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Thank you to the LSE City organizers um, of the conference for having me along. This is my first Writing Cities workshop, so I'm looking forward to engaging with the graduate student papers over the next couple of days. I also wanted to thank them for asking us to put together these 30-word statements. It's something that I was quite reluctant to do at the beginning. But as many as, as most of you know well, um, it often takes academics much more than 30 words just to clear their throats. So the fact that I think we were able to say at least something in 30 words, intelligible or not, you have to be the judge of that, is uh, I think a useful starting point given the short time that we have tonight. Um, so my statement is, in cities things proximate often acquire the quality of distance. Something may be near, but it is inaccessible fleeting. Urban aspirations stem from this distance, a distance that evokes the desire to possess. And putting this statement together, I started off by trying to think of the seductiveness of cities, that is, the ways in which cities draw in the aspirations, desires, and energies of actors, objects, and forces that exist well beyond their own geographical limits, a type of spectral presence that cities have in hinterlands even. So we can think of, for example, people living in small towns or villages who nonetheless feel as if the city has a type of presence in their lives, um, that they follow the happenings of nearby cities even if it doesn't directly bear on who they are. Um, and, and I think this, this matters in particular in the context of the Global South where we're seeing tens of millions of people every year making the trip, migrating, leaving, leaving, leaving the countryside and moving to these urban centers. Um, and they're often going, not only for economic reasons, but because of, I think, these, this kind of psychic pull that cities often have on people. But I didn't want to talk only about cities from the perspective of outside, but to sort of follow the, the narrative of the migrant, to move into the city and think about how it is that cities are then experienced um, upon arrival, so to speak. So upon arrival, um, and I think this is a sort of common, my, common migrant experience, um, all of these, these things um, that people think of or, uh, or know about cities all of a sudden are sort of f flung before the eye in new ways. Um, not just in terms of sort of media images or images as such, but through everyday interactions. Um, so uh, consumer durables, motorbikes, cars uh, are all of a sudden ex seemingly accessible in a way that they weren't necessarily 
before. Um, in addition to things like cross-class interactions that one may not have been familiar with, and uh, the hope and aspiration for improved employment, education, etc. But I think a common experience is that after a certain amount of time after arrival, the initial sheen of the city kind of wears off, and people then begin to kind of realize that things that seemed just within grasp are actually quite difficult to attain. Just as one thing, one, just as one believes that they might be gaining access to safe, secure home or housing or a better job, it seems to just slip away. Um, and there's a fantastic film by the director David Riker called La Ciudad that captures this brilliantly in the context of New York City, who talks about Latin American immigrants who have just arrived in New York City and how. Um, there's one vignette in particular where uh, this fellow arrives, he loses his initial contact address, and he arrives in New York City, and he doesn't know what to do, he doesn't know where to, where to go. Um, and he, but he ends, up being, he ends up getting taken in. He gets taken in, feels very secure, as if, as if all of a sudden he's come to this complete foreign city, but he's found a home away from home. But the next morning he exits, um, is asked to go and get milk, groceries, or something of the sort, and he leaves, he picks up these basic items, and he turns to return to the, uh, the house that's taken him in, and he's lost. He doesn't know where he is. All the buildings look the exact same. So all of a sudden, this distance has set in. Um, so I think that the, in, in my statement, what I'm trying to get at is the ways in which the, this, this proximity, the seeming proximity, actually, there's a sort of dialectic between this proximity and distance that can be quite productive. Um, we can think of, uh, for example, a, a, a day laborer who every day goes to the corner of a street looking for employment, um, hopes that one day that, that daily, that, that, that slog the corner will turn into a contract, uh, a longer term contract or a sustained wage position, this type of thing. But it always seems sort of just out of reach. But I think that this, this tension can be, can be quite productive and useful for thinking about cities. Um, and it's something that I think economists have captured in a certain way in talking about agglomeration effects, ways in which spatial clustering and proximity leads to innovation, ways in which firms and enterprises develop new strategies. But I think that that same principle, that same pattern can be thought about in terms of not just firms, but also in terms of communities and even in terms of individuals. Ways in which new aspirations and desires emerge from the sort of spatial interaction, the, this, this closeness that takes place in cities. And I think that's part of the sort of energy of cities that many of us appreciate and that we, we mourn when it, tend, when it, when it goes away. Um, so just to wrap that, that statement up, that I think that in thinking about how it is that we write about cities, that that sort of tension between how the distance in this sense might perhaps allow us to think about writing cities not from the kind of techno-managerial perspective that tends to dominate urban studies, but rather how it is that cities are actually made up of everyday energies, desires, aspirations, and affects of its everyday residents. Thank you, Asher. Um, Patrick, over to you. It's quite, I find it quite helpful if people read the statement first so that we can kind of get into it and then explain it. Yes, thanks. Well, before my statement comes up, I think it will be quite a different mood in which I will be talking. It's going to be less critical, more propositional, constructive, maybe um, with a sense of progress, participating in. The techno-managerial for me is not necessarily a negative. It's something I need to take on. Uh, 
inequalities and multiple social strata in the city for me translates also into in the kind of uh, denser and more uh, diverse division of labor. I would look at the city not from the perspective of a migrant worker, and kind of, <coughs> but at the, let's say the central figures, uh, the innovative um, professional workers who uh, have the highest impact on further progressing the world economy in its center. So, and I'm taking the kind of high dense metropolitan life, the, bit, the way you describe it, as a kind of productive hothouse, and I want to participate in that. Uh, constructively, the politics of that, the design politics, if you like, is ultimately, or the micro-political um, meaning and demeanor of these projects comes from clients, uh, is developed, the politics developed in the political system and the economic system and through clients, and I'm just taking this on, seeing the positive, because I want to work with this, I have to as an architect constructively, rather than criticizing it, and uh, the, the way I, I would set this up uh, as a kind of program project. I'm saying the societal function of urban and architectural design is the innovative ordering and framing of communication. Parametricism, which is my phrase for the contemporary global epochal style of architecture and urbanism, which is uh, in the point of formation, articulates post this network society by increasing the complexity and intensity of spatial communication. And I'm talking about organization, articulation and signification of a much higher level of uh, communicative density with, uh, with multiple publics partially interacting, partially maybe operating in parallel and using similar infrastructures. And the kind of collapsing of distance, or let's say, of course, ordering also implies that you separate and distinguish different communication scenarios. But the kind of spaces we're developing are one where um, there's a simultaneity of offerings at every more point in your visual field, in your in your immediate circumstance, uh, to to do multiple and many things and continuously have choices to upgrade and 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 fully utilize your productive time in the city. Uh, I do that on television through channel hopping while simultaneously being online and on the web, but I do it also in spaces which are so dense and rich of offerings. Uh, if you step into a complex uh, urban street or the kind of urban interiors you're developing, there's at least kind of 20 to 50 potential venue spaces you might want to uh, overview, scan, participate for a moment and move through. And uh, to do, so my discourse is one of intensification of relations and to articulate that and develop a new style which, which allows that complexity to be navigated, to be ordered, to be made perceptually palpable and it also becomes a kind of semiotic project. And uh, yeah, it is a, is a kind of riding, a, a surfing a wave which I have to see the progressive aspects of it uh, in order to participate. And I don't see the chance for a designer to, to resist, criticize. Uh, and if you try that for real in a, in a competition, uh, it's maybe the only arena where you can try it, or confronting a client, the client knows what the political demeanor uh, uh, and, and characters, of degrees of openness and degrees of separation of privacy, which audience it wants to uh, align. And you cannot slip something else underneath. But it, I think there's also a, a feeling that uh, the world 
has been progressing and as a globalized world and as a high productivity, high capacity world, of course they are, the differentials are much stronger than they have been in the 50s and 60s where the moment of convergence. But I wouldn't exaggerate the kind of income distribution and, and, and see that uh, as, as such a kind of dreadful and horrific uh, effect in the cities to the extent you're saying that, but because if I reflect sometimes uh, what I am, my uh, level of consumption and, and level of comfort in a city like London as a director of 400 architects doing global projects, if I co compare myself to a taxi driver, I'm not sure <laughs> if, 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 if what, what he's lacking from the palette of, of, of amenities and, and, and safety and even luxury inverted commas. Uh, so so I, wouldn't, I wouldn't feel, of course they're extremely rich, but they're also, uh, I mean, the amenities which modern life delivers to everybody, it's a mobile phone, a t television, a holiday, of course it's all maybe 10 times cheaper, but is it, or 100 times cheaper, but is it, is it a hundred times different? Are we not living still in the same world? My proposition, I have to think like this, otherwise uh, if uh, I couldn't kind of um, constructively enter and work, I have to believe in the city to, to develop it, I feel. Thank you, Patrick. Um, final statement by uh, Richard Sennett, who has no uh, written statement, but is going to, I don't know whether, he's, whether you're going to ad lib or just surprise us. <laughs> I, I didn't do my homework, I'm very Sorry, I hope you forgive me. Uh, and I'd like to just preface what I say by making a comment about uh, writing uh, cities as a project, which is that I think for us as urbanists, and I assume most of you are, I think this is a kind of uh, opportunity to think about writing uh, as itself in the form of a city that um, a sort of spatial world of cities is, is suggestive about, about the forms of writing we make. When I think about people like Italo Calvino, there's a remarkable uh, novel about New York by Teju Cole, which has just been produced. Um, these are overlays, fragments, assemblages of material that has a narrative form but isn't linear. And that's much of the arousing experience that we have walking a street, dwelling in a square, and so on. And it, it seems to me that as urbanists, we have a kind of insight into a, a way of perception and of expression, um, which should be reflected actually in the prose or even the poetry we use. So uh, I, I see this as, I hope this project will develop into as much of an experimental workshop about writing as it is an investigation about cities. Um, I guess what I could contribute to this is I, I've been very preoccupied both recently, both as um, in my thinking and in my, in, in my practice with a phenomenon of urban edges and boundaries, boundaries between different communities, separations between uh, uh, different socioeconomic groups in the city, uh, spatial segregation, also uh, ethnic and religious segregation. And as a political project, uh, 
And I should also say that I think a lot of the direction of 20th century urbanism moved towards creating more and more homogeneous communities. Uh, the more bounded, more the gated communities kind of metaphor for a great deal of urbanism that applies uh, to immigrants and poor people as well as it does to the rich. Uh, so that the edge condition where differences meet seems to me to be, to use your language, a design pol political space. And the thing about edge conditions is that even as they bring different groups closer together, they increase the distance and the comfort distance people have from places where uh, they're with others like themselves. Uh, that is, that this is a, it's a double act. And it's getting people to interact in the living edge is something that imposes a kind of propinquity on them and creates a sense of loss by creating this distance. You're far away from what's, farther away from what's familiar but serves a political process in the city. And my sense of this is that we as designers aren't so skilled at how to do this. This is a quite amorphous kind of zone. I'm, I'm hoping to work in Marseille and Lyon on this project to complement work I'm, I'm already doing in New York on 110th Street. Uh, People don't inhabit this boundary condition willingly. Uh, they don't go to this distance for interaction willingly. And the urbanist has to think about what kind of magnets or location of resources get put on these edge spaces which draw people out of the communities where they have greater comfort. It's a very ambiguous Proposition. It has political logic, but it is also in some way coercive. We're having a discussion for in New York, for instance, there's a discussion that's beginning in Marseille about where to locate schools on the boundaries in New York between white and black areas, and in Marseille between uh, poor whites and poor North Africans. So that these groups are drawn out of the centers of their community to interact at the edge. And that complicated experience of distance can't be described by urbanity in its normal terms. It's not flannery, it's enforced by design. Uh, it's ambiguous, it's a space of difficulty rather than uh, a space of pleasure. But to me, that's what this subject contains, this relationship between distance and closeness. It's set into the context of the massive segregative uh, power of 20th century city making, which has to be uh, undone. So that's where I am. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, so it's a big topic. Um, <laughs> and and six, six diverse readings, but actually, in a way, not as diverse as I mm. thought. 
there's a lot of overlap there. And um, it, I mean, interestingly, no one really talked about scale, the scale of the, the right. distance inherent in scale. So that was Ash's job. He's the geographer. Ah, you screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there was no talk about one side of Sao Paulo from the other, or indeed London, you know, the difference between East London and West London, which is a geographical distance, but also psychological, obviously. Um, it seems like where the overlap happens, it's, we're talking about psychological distance or economic distance. Um, and it, in fact, I, mean, I, I asked a rather crass question at the beginning, is, is distance a good thing or a bad thing? Mm. Um, I don't think anyone argued it was a good thing, did they? I did. You did? Mm -hmm. Can you elucidate a little bit more? Well, I, I just think that, that basic category of social, being able to maintain social distance Mm -hmm. um, given the prep, I mean, it's it's just straight Zimmel. Gunter could get up and rehearse it for me far more eloquently. But but this is a necessary condition for um, dealing with life in uh, the modern city in which he was writing, and certainly the city, which the kind of city that, that Patrick was describing, um, the capacity to maintain a distance between people who were in your face, who were right there. Um, but it's when that that sort of basis of social interaction, which is one mechanism for social interaction and one version of the city as a form of, of social life, um, becomes entrenched um, uh, and becomes embedded in, in spaces. Become, you know, it becomes a, a form of spatial segregation. You use the word social distance as a defense. Mm. And I, I mean, thinking back to that coffee analogy, I mean, yeah. we set up these barriers. I don't know what they're doing in Rio when they're having coffee, but. There's no opposite of distance in that. There's no distance. You're right. Yeah. There's, there's always distance from everybody and everything and at every moment, including within the self, right? I mean, so it's not as if we're the, the absence of distance is one of the possibilities. So I think the, the amount of right amount of distance is the political question. Yeah. Uh, well, you made a clear point that distance, there was a, there was a distance between the, the, the discourse and the political action. Yeah. And the, the, you, you set up distance right. as a negative. I did set it up as a negative, but the, but, the, but the end result won't be identity. It won't be identity. We're not going to have the urbanists run the world. We're not going to do that. But so the question that I made a political statement about it's too much distance. And the inequality statement was an in a statement, as I heard it, is too much distance. But it's not that the end result could be income equality forever. You can't even imagine what it means. Hmm. Can I ask Patrick a question? Um, I mean, the work you do plays a lot with ambiguous edges and unresolved endings. And I've wondered if you've ever thought of, about that uh, about the social implication of that, that process. I'm having to think a lot about it and working uh, with his boundary things. What does it mean to, for people to come to the end of something that's familiar and go into an ambiguous zone? Is that something that's ever crossed your mind that you're actually showing what that looks like or how that's yeah, experienced? For sure. I mean, our discourse is one of... Um, Overcome, uh, developing new models which are more about interpenetrating domains right. and strictly zoned. It's about high density is also high mixity, diversity of uh, arenas, forms of interaction, 
coming very close, partially also interpenetrating. You also find that in terms of uh, the institutions, the, uh, the museum, the kind of multiple audience, multiple activities which fuse or corporate organization with departmental uh, uh, structures kind of interpenetrating and domains of competency blurring and so I'm looking a lot of this but what I not take on and I, I couldn't yeah. uh, is, is let's say get um, too much uh, let's say involved with interpreting this as stratification and hierarchy because I, I believe in the notion of a function differentiated society being quite a reality yeah. and, and I feel though income differences no longer translates into like it maybe was still in the 19th century early 20th century into somebody has an inbuilt privilege in all domains in all respects I think that uh, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a bus driver, taxi driver or, or a director, everybody has their function, purpose, get respect, space, which you cannot cross. Uh, and and uh, if, if the use of occupying a public space, it doesn't matter how rich you are, that space is occupied by youth. If you, are, you want to take a public transport, you stand in queue whether you are earning uh, 100 or 200 times uh, somebody else in front of the queue and everybody, and I feel that more developed in, in, Amer in America, and that it's been de develops more and more, also with, uh, with the um, employment law, the respect and space and recognition everybody receives in the public domain. The public domain, there is nobody with inbuilt uh, for, uh, <laughs> privileges, as it were. And so, so I, that's what I want to reflect in order to then focus on differences of communication patterns diff without thinking of hierarchy and, and thinking that I'm putting somebody down if I draw certain boundaries, if I fuse certain things and separate certain things because you cannot have relations, uh, everybody with everybody, because structure in social organization is about a selective setting up of relations. Of course, these relations are more dense, more intricate, more flexible and dynamic than ever before. And that's why our architectures are not hermetic, they're continuously interpenetrating and spaces bleeding into each other, working with gradients, working with the blurring of boundaries, with the dissolution of boundaries, and working rather with the continuously shifting field conditions to set up zones, domains, uh, to set up different types of interaction. But I don't want to emphasize this, this notion of um, segregation, uh, degradation, Maybe it's there, but it's not the only reading. Mm. If I had this reading, it couldn't work. And I would say I would have to enter politics uh, because the world is is not to be engaged in it. It's you are in changed. politics. You are in <laughs> no, politics, no. but not in formal politics. No, I've, I made a clear decision that, uh, that I realized that I'm not moving into politics because that's a that's a non-mainstream sensibility. There's a sense of civic responsibility that transcends distances, mm. and that your buildings somehow reflect that. Because you're saying here that they, they reflect complexity. Mm. The yeah. question is, I was going to ask you what, you can communicate complexity, but what really are you communicating? Because the first part of your statement reads almost like a definition of postmodernism or something. You're communicating very simple messages to people about what this building might be and what it stands for. In your case, this complexity is about the complexity of the city, the blurring of social boundaries that you're saying. But the institutions we're working for share the sensibility. 
they are, and that's why I'm not in a position to criticize them. These are legitimately constituted institutions, clients, whether it's a national museum, with the Ministry of Culture, with, with, with you know, with, with curators, or, have, or whether it's BMW, a, a kind of a company which has, which, which has developed a leadership, a certain concept of developing the corporate space, which is progressive on many levels. And I'm openly, with the kind of sense of progressiveness I'm developing, I'm, op uh, uh, I'm moving through kind of open doors. And at the same time, I think a kind of, um, uh, and I'm not, and the politics is coming from these clients. They are legitimately constituted, and the micropolitics is attributed to the clients. So who am I to kind of push them into, into an identity they, 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 they don't, don't want to transport, they want to represent themselves, because these, these architectures are not attributed to the architects, they're attributed to the hosts, to the institutions who occupy them, who want to project themselves in certain ways, but I don't find in the, in the real projects we're doing a contradiction, um, uh, and to a certain extent that kind of blurring of boundaries and Intensifying communications, openness of institutional uh, spaces is 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 what the clients we're working on asking for. So, whereas in contrast, well, I, I just I have a couple of points. Yeah. But whereas in contrast, you might say that Utzon got it wrong in this case that the architect was not on the same page as the client and had a different you know vision of what this space might and should be as a as a political and a, and a civic space. Uh, than the clients. I just wanted to respond to a couple of things that Patrick said. Firstly, I absolutely agree with you about the, the ordinary capacity of many cities to, to hold social distance. Everyone has to queue. You know, that, that is one of the things that um, I, I find most positive about cities as egalitarian spaces. But I think the idea that public, no one has an inbuilt, well, no one has an inbuilt, I'm a sociologist, God forbid, no one has an inbuilt um, privilege in, in public space. Um, but men kind of do in many, many cases. And you can think of all kinds of, of diversity in space and at times when it moves between groups and, and youth and you know, everyone else is a good example of that. But this is, you know, there are no general social laws, but it's not a bad one if you were going to say that men are routinely privileged in, in public space, not because of inbuilt characters, but because this is socially and spatially reproduced. Just inside. <laughs> I'm more aware of that now. Um, Larry. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering how, how Patrick's projects play out in a, in a triple world where there's a, a design uh, agenda, uh, even a global brand, I think you would call it, uh, coming out of the office, a client uh, that you might uh, have in agreement with about openness and ex extensive interactivity, but also a larger uh, context and public realm in a particular place at a time when you're working all over the world with all manner of regimes. Um, and so it's a, triple, it's a triple sense of what I would call design politics. Mm -hmm. It's the design politics of the uh, Zaha Hadid brand uh, coming together with the institutional design politics in the context of a design politics of a, a regime. So, um, is there a place that you wouldn't work? <laughs> um, well, my experience is that, uh, that 
even in certain countries which have uh, pockets of, of backwardness which are unspeakable, uh, there are moments, aspects, institutions which are absolutely on, on the, let's say, most advanced level of, of thinking, desire, participation. So we're doing, we're doing a project in Saudi Arabia which is a kind of energy research center. We're going to have a lot of international researchers and the whole campus is, 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 is and what the client would, is asking for is 100% in line with maybe what, you know, nearly what Google campus would be asking us for. Uh, we are working in uh, Azerbaijan, which has been criticized as one of the most corrupt countries of, of the world, but, but the, 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 the main cultural center and, uh, what they're looking for in terms of the um, um, a light, open structure with, with multiple facilities, all public, museum, conferencing uh, center, and the library are the kind of they're aspiring to, to, you know, to de develop a society, an economy, uh, with, with various institutions, which are ultimately the aspiration is certain state of the art. Um, um, institutions, discourses they want to participate in, and they are, of course these places are full of contradiction, uh, but I feel, I feel not, I will not take the position of uh, I'm making my, getting my hands dirty here, or the, we, we have to recognize historic position, um, these societies which have been emerging out of the Eastern Bloc, for instance, uh, same as in China, what, they, what they're trying to do, what, they, what, what route they're on, and what obstacles are on this route, and that we're making a kind of progressive contribution. So as long as we can do the kind of architecture, which I would argue is um, a translation of a state-of-the-art sense of, of um, um, cultural communication spaces. Uh, Richard has to leave us. Every, uh, uh, my my son is performing at the Barbican in half hour, so we have to... That's a distance one does not want to. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you for joining us so for the time you had. Okay, well, as, as uh, Larry insinuated, their branding, whether it's iconic architecture, is also a form of kind of collapsing distances. Uh, you know, cities use it to entice people from across the world. But if we bring it back to within the city context, um, Asha, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that sense of distance in the city and how it affects people. Distance within... S well, we talked, I mean, we, we mentioned at the beginning that no one mentioned anything to do with scale. Oh, right. Kind of psychological distance. <laughs> and uh, as Franz says, she said, you're the geographer. So to say something about geography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Um. <clears throat> Unless it's not interesting to you. If it's not, I mean, it's, there was a reason why no one brought it up, I suppose. Well, it's, it's, it's something that geographers talk about quite a lot, so we tend to, some of us get tired of it. Um, but I, well, maybe there's one point of entry that I can, that, that links up with some of the things that, that, other, that, that maybe especially Fran was saying in terms of distance as far, this is going back to social distance though, not, not physical distance. Um, but I don't think there is consensus that distance is always bad. Um, and there's been, um, for example, the, the World Bank's World Development Report from 2009, which is highly, uh, heavily influenced by economic geographers, 
ends up sort of making the argument that distance is a good thing. It's okay to have, um, it's okay to have spatial winners and spatial losers, this, this type of argument that it's okay to, it, large income inequalities can be quite productive to, cl to cluster economic activities. And that's part of why I mentioned the issue of, um, of economic agglomeration is, is a good thing. It's the way to maximize growth, maximize efficiency. Um, but as a result of that, it's, it's basically accepting that there are losers and, they, and, and that you, you either, you're basically giving up on the, the spaces that are, that are losers. So if it's not a successful sort of thriving, emerging town, then, um, then there's no need to have sort of economic, central economic policies that would redistribute Sure. In, in that so matters. to put it provocatively, inequality is good for the city. Inequality is good for the city. Yeah, it generates. Um, uh, it, it can be highly efficient. But as, as um, Jerry pointed out earlier, there's no such there's no such thing as distance. In we're, the we're people who say inequality is good for the city are not the people who are disadvantaged by it. No, obviously, it's, it's the most provocative I mean, way of putting that statement. Can I say? Sure. I mean, what, what I would say is, you. There are certain cities, obviously, where the degree of, where there's little, little exclusion from societal process and amenities. If you go to, I mean, I was in India and various cities, that level of inequality cannot be fathomed and, and, and be condoned. Right, so, 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 but these also, I have to understand that these cities, there is, there is indeed a kind of, um, uh, they're developing countries, developing metropolises. There's a, there's a clear recognition that this has to be, that this is uh, um, worked on and needs to be progress in some ways. I'm not sure we would say the same thing for London. I don't find, as I said earlier, if you compare myself with a taxi driver or with, uh, with, with this, you know, a young person coming to the city, of course you have you have uh, um, dropouts and, 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 and drug addicts and so on, which are excluded, mm -hmm. I suspect, and that needs to be handled. And if every, but, so I think there's inequality and there's inequality. And, and, and I think that's where I would say there's, there's degrees of inequality you can't, let's say, normalize and, 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 and accept and work within. Uh, and you, if you work within such territories, you consider these to be temporary conditions, you can't build, in, build them into a kind of, as a permanent feature of, of, of an urban project. That would be absurd. Uh, Jerry, is there a way of collapsing the distance that you uh, described before between uh, political action and uh, discourse? I mean, there's a reason, I mean, does political action always follow a kind of capitalist imperative, which is somehow at odds with the egalitarian um, notions that you espouse? No. I mean, and I, I don't think there's such a thing as the logic of capitalism which leads to something. I think there's many, many capitalisms in the, in the world. And the question <coughs> is what kind of capitalism we want. Uh, and then how the we gets constituted. So I understand how, Patrick, you say that your clients are legitimately constituted and that's the world you live in. As an architect, lawyers often take this attitude. You can see why you do that. But whether they're legitimately constituted is a political question. And a lot of people think all of them, I don't even know who your clients are, but the ministers and a lot of the corporationalized people are not legitimately constituted. Uh, so there is a political question from another angle, right? of the constitution of all these things, and I don't think there's any particular logic against doing that, no.
And I think that some places can be more successful than others. Well, they're more legitimately constituted than me substituting myself and second-guessing right. mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. what they should no, no. want. It, 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 it's not between that and you. It's, it's between that yeah. and some political well, process. Then you have to enter the political system as far yeah. as it's concerned. Yeah, yeah, if, you, if you can't accept the statement that these clients are uh, legitimately constituted, then you're not going to be an architect anymore. Can I raise the, the other side of that? You, um, Justin, raised the, the issue of scale, but another key concept in our discussion, which is position, um, because the second part of the uh, theme for this week's workshop is where do we stand? And, and Patrick's very courageously said, well, you know, I have to stand in the thick of it. You know, I have to take a stance. I completely removed myself from my <laughs> statement. You know, um, and, and, and Jerry's talked about the way that um, Critics, academics, commentators, uh, do-gooders, whatever, uh, right thinkers will often stand outside the, the, the mainstream discourses of, of practice and political action. And I was very um, compelled by, by Larry's account of his palm tree, the palm tree maneuver, uh, because you, this seems to me to link very clearly to the, the position as a problem of writing, not just in terms of a political or ethical stance, which it also is, but where you, what distance you set yourself at in order to observe, analyze, and write about either the building or the city, or as you described it, the, the political realities that, that shape all of those things. It's a, it's a huge problem because it, it's, if, if you want to write about a controversial place, you need the access hmm. to it uh, to be trusted enough by the people who produced that place to let you in, as I did on my second visit to Kuwait, um, because I couldn't write about it from behind the palm the tree. Palm tree. Um, but, but I could uh, have to find a way of, of being a trusted enough observer that still allows a, an independent critical account of of the place and the circumstances. So, so that's what I mean by the, the distance that we have to stand, is, is that, that, that one can't be pushing off and say, I want no part of that system, yeah. uh, and say anything useful to the people who are in that system. Mm -hmm. but, but you can't be wholly engaged in that system uh, without losing your independent voice and your criticality. Thank you for raising that. I mean, that's obviously key, how close you are to your subject. Um, Jerry, did you want to add something? No. Okay. Well, why don't we open it up to the... Uh, yeah, I'm sure you will add something. Why, why don't we open I'm it sure, up yeah. to the audience to uh, That's what throw some questions at this panel. There are roving mics here, so just raise your hand. I know there are a lot of um, uh, participants in this writing course here, so now's your chance to open up this debate. Yep, there's a question there. Uh, five rows from the back. <coughs> uh, some 20 years ago, I was a visitor to Brasilia. What a strange city. They call it a futuristic city. Uh, there is no payment, a few payments. There is nothing for the pedestrian, only people with cars. You can put one side to the other side of the pavement, you have to run through. I don't understand the futuristic city. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. That, that, that's a perfect example of that scale question. Um, the, the, the wonderful account of the building of Brasilia called the Modernist City by, by James Holston makes the point that one set of people built the city uh, and that the government was startled that they actually wanted to live in it after it was finished. And, uh, and that the entire uh, center of Brasilia was premised on levels of, of, of bureaucrats who could afford cars or who could uh, manage to do that and that the people who actually did it, built the city, were either in squatter camps or in designed uh, satellite cities. Uh, so that the, the, what was being built is a city region and the pilot plan of Brasilia houses about 10% of that city's region's population right now because it was meant to distance one group of people from another. Uh, and at the micro level, the buildings that were uh, constructed uh, by uh, architects with communist or near-communist uh, sympathies expressed rather ex uh, overtly uh, that every class of, of uh, government worker would live in the same uh, superquadras lasted only very a short while and, and the, the upper income people decamped to single family homes on the lake and, and the lowest people couldn't afford to live in the city. Um, so uh, we see an image uh, and an intent uh, passionately expressed by, by urban designers and by architects and Oscar Niemeyer, unless something's happened recently at age 101 <laughs> or 102, is still in charge of public buildings uh, in Brasilia. Um, uh, you know, so the politics were saying uh, um, something very different than, than the design uh, intent. Mm. Just Jerry's point again. Mm. Um, another question from you. Yes, right there. Well, uh, first I would like to thank all the speakers for the very interesting statements they raised. I'd just like to add a couple of points to what you've said already. Well, uh, what first comes to me when I think about distance is the notion of frontiers. So in order to have distance, you need to uh, define the frontiers, whether they are physical or spatial or has to do with architecture whatsoever. Well, what I think is that uh, modern cities are very much have to do with economic frontiers. I mean, regions that are built and structured according to uh, the economic status of the citizens. So what comes to me is I would like to, uh, to join uh, what Professor Larry Vell said about urban design politics. Does it have to do with an, an urban design politics project whatsoever? Or are we talking about the distance that is somehow physically framed, de facto framed, I don't know what I can call it. Thank you. Larry, that was specifically addressed to you. Well, others, did, others have different views of, of design politics. I don't think well, I, I'm just regretting the fact that Richard has left because this yeah. should have been his question, yeah. actually. Um, you know, he's the, in talking about edge conditions in the city, which maybe is a, um, you know, your sense of frontiers is a stronger sense of that same concept. The, the challenge is to prevent frontiers becoming impermeable, becoming barricaded. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that, actually. It's, it's, the, it's the Richard Senate question. <laughs> but frontiers are also supposed to be conquered, aren't they? By force. Or by wagon, I mean, <laughs> whatever. I mean, distances, distances to cross, you know, land to seas, occupied. 
Yes, there's a question here. I think we can easily see a demonstration of what Jerry was talking about, the distance between the urban discourse, the ones who want to question and think about it, and the ones who want to really do it. I think architectural practice and urban design, the gap, that, the distance that you're talking about is really visible here, and it's really a big problem in the world out there. I think we should invite more people like this and make them feel comfortable and try to fill this gap somehow. The problem I see is that as an architect, I totally understand what you're talking about. If you want to open the door to these political questions, it would not stop anywhere. You would totally be drowned in it and lose the possibility for any kind of action, of being a doer. One can say emasculated as an architect. You will lose all potency for design. And what is the solution to that, really? Well, the problem is that no one wants to open doors. It's not just, not just the architects. Everyone wants to, well, I can't get into that. That's over there, right? That's some other question. And, well, we'll leave that, too. But no one's holding the... Uh, issue. So for me, we're, I'm just trying to figure out, there are people who can change, who have a lot of ability to redesign the future of the city. I mean, government officials and other officials, right? And I'm trying to reach them through politics. That's what I'm trying to do. And the architects will go along with it. They will. I mean, we, have, we will change the nature of the city and change the nature of what's building. They can be part of it, but we need it. Everyone is behind the door thinking that it's not an issue. Do you think it's the difference between doers and thinkers? And I think these people are thinkers. You're yeah. thinkers. <laughs> no, I don't know. No, no. And I, you know, I do things. I claim. I would just add, add to that that I think a lot of of the answer was the one that Patrick said very well, which is that the way architects will reconcile this is by saying they're designing for the society they hope will be next, if it hasn't necessarily been so exactly now, and that the force of, of building something can be an occasion to foster a kind of interaction that may not be there in quite the same level now as it should be or ought to be. And that, and that the way that one reconciles this as a practitioner, even if the client isn't 100% uh, where you would like them to be or the place that you're working, has got to be that, that you believe you, the force of your ideas, the values that are encoded in your design, uh, will have some impact in a positive way in the setting in which it is built, rather than reinforce the the, the less progressive sides of the place uh, as they are now. Um, it's very hard, and you can you can easily delude yourself, as I think the example from Utzon uh, suggests. Um, but there are other examples where where the uh, the architecture is and the urban design is ahead of the politics. And sometimes the politics improves, and the architect looks wise. Question here. Oh, sorry, the man in the blue shirt and tie. Oh, can do you first? Uh, that um, in the days after Libya, 
that shows you what a difficult political judgment it is as to whether we're or the designers are somehow in advance. And it's so difficult, but also an important lesson in this institution and in others to learn, that it's very easy to be taken in by the idea that the legitimate political framing is somehow legitimate and the architect doesn't have to ask that political question. He has to be able, or she has to, be able to open that door and not think that the question of who is a doer and who is a thinker is somehow separable. But I just wanted to bring another example from Britain, which was the riots that took place in Oldham, in the north of England, and a sense that the distance between communities that had been framed in a kind of official multiculturalism had led to a period of kind of benign neglect. And distance, social distance between different communities, that led to a kind of riot. So there's a way that the political questions, which are for architects and designers, around distance need to be engaged with. Now, one of the lessons out of the Oldham, and it actually frames in terms of what Richard has said, is in some way in terms of the importance in building that bridges, the importance of framing or positioning a school, which they're doing, at the edge of a community, which then frames the possibility of children from very different backgrounds being brought into that schooling environment and the recognition that the architecture of that school is obviously really important and significant and that the question of distance and social distance, particularly after 7-7, the questions around multiculturalism, are framed in a really important and significant political way. Thank you for that. Uh, there was another question, Madam Tai. Um, I have to say I'm not a, uh, not a specialist in urban planning, I'm a political scientist, but I would like to ask the, the, uh, the group, uh, when you say you're building an infrastructure for people that are not there in the first place, is this not also a, pro a, problemat a problem related to what has become as a say of eco-cities? So you're building green cities and you may don't have the population uh, to, to like to accept it in the first place. How you deal with it? How you convince them? And uh, if I say this in this way, I would like to uh, make some comments in the way uh, what's happened in China. And I think it was Dongshan, close to Shanghai, where it was advocated to say we're making an eco-city. And then in the end, it's uh, coming up that many of the Chinese city people living there accepted because they assumed the building will be more, more expensive, so they get added value and didn't have much in common with an eco-city concept. So this is the question. Uh, if we go down this way of building eco-cities, are we really having the citizen for it? What's your opinion on it? Can you repeat that? Are we really having the... I, did, I missed that. Citizens. Citizens. Oh, the citizens. Okay. 
So I would like to respond to the two points together. So I said I'm the Louis Brandeis professor at the Harvard Law School. Louis Brandeis is a Supreme Court justice in the United States. But he was well known for this proposition. The lawyer just doesn't mechanically follow what the client wants. That the lawyer helps the client think about what the client wants. Because the client's unsure about what, how to think about it. So the law, one of the lawyer's expertise is to say, actually, you say that's in your self-interest, but actually it's not, if you think about it. I can't believe the architects don't do the same thing and actually help form the client in this thing rather than treat the client as some independent ob object. And I mean, so that's in terms, and here the client in the echo city is, who is the client, right? Is the client the, the government or is it the people who would live there? And how are we going to think about who it is we're trying to serve here? So the, the architect is, much, I can't believe the architect is not more engaged in the formulation of the question from the client. client. This is the Louis Brandeis point yeah. in law. Well, the Louis Kahn point of view was mm -hmm. to say to a client, uh, a program is only an approximation of a need. And, and then uh, to explain what the client really wanted, uh, um, which is some building that looks like it was designed by Lou Kahn. <laughs> <laughs> and the Cedric Price view, as we all know, is to say you don't need to, you know, to say to a couple, you don't need a lawyer, uh, an architect, you need a divorce lawyer. No. I, mean, yes, I, I agree oh. with that in terms of the, if it's in the spirit of enga collaborative engagement yeah. and acceptance to a certain extent of the client, and then you open dialogue. Um, so that, that I don't think it can be in the spirit of fundamental questioning of the legitimacy of the client and a kind of in, in the spirit of sabotage and, and subterfuge and, and, and so, 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 so that means there must be a kind of um, there's a kind of margin of maybe five to ten percent to put it in figures where you can um, um, uh, anticipate put progressive potentials this also addresses the question here, if you, if you create a kind of utopian construct, will it be a stillborn um, um, white elephant? So you, there needs to be enough... Um, lady in the black top. Thank you. Hello. Um, on Tuesday night, Professor Frug, you spoke about the South African Constitution and how that had the ability to bring together different levels or spheres of political actors. And so, just getting back to writing, what sort of written document might bring together the urban practitioners and people, the urban planning, urbanists side, and then also maybe the political actors, and where do you think that discourse might come from? Well, there are a few copies, as Adam and Adam <laughs> say, outside. Oh, of the doc, but that doesn't answer the question. Mm. Uh, of just such a discourse. Uh-huh. So, uh, it's very hard for the academics and, and the, the officials to actually do something together in some way that, that would be productive and, and writing something in common would be a really interesting thing about, about, so there are all sorts of documents produced by the academics and there are all sorts of documents produced by the government. I mean, the localism bill has produced thousands of pages of documents, so maybe the, the, some interchange is possible. It's an interesting thing to think about. I haven't thought about this. Continue, I mean, talking about writing, we haven't talked about writing very much. I mean, I kept wondering whether 
whether distance is an advantage when you're when you're examining a city, because there are different things that an outsider and an insider can bring to that analysis. Like, for instance, it's maybe odd that an Englishman in Raina Bannon writes one of the classic texts about Los Angeles, um, uh, Mike Davis and Angelina, because he is Angelina, right? Mm -hmm. Writes another one. So you get the two kind of um, poles. I mean, I tend to drop into cities and write about them rather than writing about my own. Somehow there's always something more interesting about the other city. But I think we have time for one more question. Yes, uh, actually that lady at the back had her hand up before. Hi, thanks. Um, most of the panelists spoke about some aspect of, of um, distance between economic groups and for the most part I think there was an unfavorable presentation of that reality. Um, it seems to me that there is a, a, a policy convergence, at least in Western housing and urban policy fields, uh, to build mixed income communities as some response to that spatial inequality. Um, but to date, most empirical research on the impact of such mixed income communities is pretty ambiguous, and particularly with regard to the impact on the low income folks moving into mixed income development. So I'm just wondering if the panelists could reflect on sort of the role of policy in forcing integration, um, particularly in light of a lack of empirical proof that that's better for either better well-off or, or poor people. Um, let me try that one. I have a, a manuscript due in six weeks on that subject. That's, and, the, and the title of the, the book is uh, Purging the Poorest, uh, which should give you a, a preview of my answer. Um, and I think it's another one of these examples in, in, in housing policy favoring mixed incomes uh, of, of both policymakers and designers convincing themselves of a very open and interactive society that will do all sorts of things um, that that's predicted and ignoring the, the social science efforts to measure these things that have found uh, much less mixing uh, of the incomes or, or, or much, much else. And uh, it becomes a way of, of redeveloping property um, but in a socially regressive way. Uh, and in many cases it's uh, a revisitation of, of places that had been considered slums uh, 60 or 70 years ago that were cleared once of the poorest population and put put back in uh, a better off group of uh, people in social housing, then it declines to a point where the poor people are seen as a problem and are evicted again uh, in the aim of mixed income. And it's rationalized by saying, well, everybody will be better off, uh, poor people will get out of a place that is uh, demonstrably unpleasant and intolerable, um, but ignoring the, the kinds of social networks that have been built up in those places and the value uh, that people have in them, um, and discovering that sometimes the mixed income communities have far less uh, richness of, of social interaction than in the communities that had replaced them. Um, I'd like to give a slightly different answer. I think it's wrong to think of class integration as coerced and class segregation as voluntary. I think if you look back at the history of cities from the beginning, class segregation is not the history. That people lived together in a class mixed society until yesterday. And then when people move to class-segregated communities, they feel they don't have any choice but to do that, given the nature of the world it's felt as to be involuntary. So I'm I, I just against the voluntary involuntary distinction in thinking about that. I think that we build cities to be integrated or to be segregated. We can do either one. And over the history of the world, we have long built in integrated cities, just the way they have been. 
Uh, so, uh, and you know, we, we, the world is as we find it. It's not, we didn't accept, we didn't invent it ourselves. We come into the world. In well, that I sense, it's all involved. Respond to that one also. I agree with Jerry that you can legislate, or as it were, or you can design for integration, if by that you mean propinquity, if you mean spatial integration. You can't legislate for communities, you can't legislate for social integration. So I am um, a supporter of mixed incomes in close proximity in the city, and, and you see it in London historically. Um, the, the problem for me with this set of policies, at least in this country, is not the mixed incomes bit or the mixed tenures, it's the communities bit. And that's the sort of this normative um, add-on, uh, which I, th I think has promised too much, promised things which are simply, almost by definition, unrealizable, can't be engineered, um, and not necessarily desirable, and are certainly not desired generally by everyone. Um, whereas on the other hand, there is, I think, a strong argument to be made for a politics that says there should be affordable housing supply in desirable parts of the city, in uh, parts of the city that are um, close to centers of, of work, as well as centers of consumption and that um, people on lower income should not simply be priced out of, of the central part of the city. If that's what the mixed income initiative and mixed tenure initiative was about, that would be good enough for me. But again, as a sociologist, I think the idea that you can legislate for communities is, is ridiculous. And I think, touching on, uh, both, on all three points, Larry's and Jerry's as well, um, if you see what's happening in London now with the kind of er erasure of all of these council estates saying that places like Hackney and the replacement of them with things like you know, luxury developments with basically a, a percentage of mixed income housing. What's clear is that we have two very different um, conceptions of the city there. One is for social housing, it's, it's not based on property values. As soon as you integrate um, a kind of affordable housing element or a lower income element into those things, it becomes about property values. And I think everything in the city is suddenly becoming about property values and the question is whether there's a different way of imagining a city that's more about ideas or ideology or culture or community, um, not just capital. And this, this same <clears throat> fight and debate is going on in the Indian context and I think in many uh, emerging cities around the world and, I, and a lot of them are, are, are indeed looking to cities like London and New York as examples and, and this decision of how it is that you design affordability, um, how you think about affordability is really crucial. And so what you're seeing is a, is a, a, a trend very similar to what Larry has described, whereby you know, you're, you're taking slums and seeing them as, the, as these sort of despicable spaces that need to be sort of removed, upgraded in some manner. But it's leading to an, abs uh, 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 an absolute reduction in the total space that's, that's allocated, ground space that's allocated yeah. to low-income housing. And you're putting them in multi-story buildings, um, or some percentages reserved, but it's still on this a smaller percentage that was there before, and it's still it's still premised on um, this uh, absolute property value, mm -hmm. and so it, it, it inevitably will, is leading to gentrification and the the process of of, of fringing that are, are moving to the, the the far frontiers or peripheries of the city that mm -hmm. Richard was talking about. I mean, now that we've hit on this topic, I suspect we'd be gone for some time, but I think we should bring it to a close because we're, we're out of time now. Um, it only remains to thank um, this very uh, 
distinguished and, and very lucid panel. And thank you as well for joining us here tonight. Thank you.